Hey y'all and welcome back to another episode of Becoming No One. I'm your host Big Taj and today we're going to jump into the seven stanzas. Okay, so as discussed in the last episode, the seven stanzas are actually where the seven days of creation come from in the Bible. And these stanzas come from this secret book of Dizon. Um, But today we're going to be reading them directly from the secret doctrine, which is again by Helena Blavatsky, because she did an amazing job of articulating these complex ideas and breaking them down into a format that we can understand. I also like the idea of us reading it from the Dizon and from Helena's perspective, just because she's, you know, studied for 20 plus years of her life, this information. So reading her perspective, but also giving you the opportunity to interpret the information for yourself as well. So this is going to be like a little book club, which I like. Um, and today's episode is just going to go over stanza one because it has nine parts y'all and it's kind of long. So I'm just going to hop straight into it. And I love to hear y'all feedback on this. Now let's break this down part by part. Okay, so part one of stanza one basically says the eternal parent, and then it puts space in parentheses, wrapped in her ever invisible robe, had slumbered once again for seven eternities. Okay, so the parent space is the eternal, ever present cause of the all, the incomprehensible deity whose invisible robes are the mystic roots of all matter and of the universe. Okay, space is the one eternal thing that we can we can mostly imagine easily as immovable in its abstraction and uninfluenced by either the presence or absence of an objective universe. It is without dimension in every sense and existence. Okay. Spirit slash consciousness is actually the first differentiation from that. Okay. The causeless cause of both spirit and matter. It is as taught in the esoteric catechism, neither limitless void nor conditioned fullness, but both it was and ever will be. And again, y'all just listen to me and I'm explaining. Okay. The robes, stand for the noumenon, which is just an object of thought of undifferentiated cosmic matter. It is not matter as we know it though, but the spiritual essence of matter and is co-eternal and even one with space in its abstract sense. Root nature is also the source of subtle invisible properties in visible properties or visible matter. It is the soul, so to say, of the one infinite spirit. Now, the Hindus actually acknowledge this as well, and they call it the Mola Prakriti. And they basically say that it's the primordial substance, which is the basis of the vehicle of every single phenomenon, whether it's on the physical, mental, or the psychic uh, plane. The psychic plane is the same as the spiritual plane. So it is the source from which Akasa radiates. And Akasa sounds literally just like Akashic for a reason. It's the fifth element that records all events. To me, that sounds like aether, okay? The aether that surrounds us and connects us all, but they call this the Akasa. Now, when they say seven eternities, they're not talking about eternities in the way that we know them. They're talking about eons or periods, okay? Now, an eternity in the way that we understand it didn't actually come around until the rise of Christianity. So it doesn't really exist when we're talking about esoteric knowledge. Um, But what they mean by seven eternities is seven periods. And they call these basically like the great age. Okay. So it's seven periods of Mon Ventura and extending throughout the Maha Kapla or what's called the great age, which is a hundred years of Brahma. Now a hundred years of Brahma is about 311 trillion years. And each year of Brahma, which is reckoning by the lunar year, And a day of Brahma consists of about 4 trillion mortal years, okay? So these eternities belong to the most sacred calculations in which in order to arrive at the true 
total, every figure must be seven times the power of X. So X varies according to the nature of cycle in the subjective or the real world. And every figure or number relating to or representing all different cycles from the greatest to the smallest in the objective or the unreal world must necessarily be multiples of seven okay so you know they say seven is like a great number in the universe so the key to this cannot be given for herein lies the mystery of esoteric calculations and for the purposes of ordinary calculations it has no sense the number seven says the Kabbalah is the great number of the divine mysteries. Number 10 is that of all human knowledge, which is Pythagorean decade. And then a thousand is the number of 10 to the third power. And therefore the number 7,000 is also symbolic. Now I know that might've been confusing because I'm sitting here throwing a thousand numbers at y'all. Basically what you need to understand is that this first peak, piece of this stanza one is telling us or describing the state of non-existence which lasted for seven eternities and you just have to know that it's not our eternities it's like trillions and billions of years okay of what we would consider to be mortal years okay and during this time space was in this state of just being there was no thought that was being projected okay so it was in a state of non-existence almost as if it was sleeping stanza one part two says Time was not, for it lay asleep in the infinite bosom of duration, okay? Now, Helena said, time is only an illusion produced by the succession of our states of consciousness as we travel through eternal duration, and it does not exist where no consciousness exists in which the illusion can be produced, but lies asleep. The present is only a mathematical line which divides that part of eternal duration, which we call the future, from the part which we call the past. Nothing on earth has real duration, for nothing remains without change or the same for the billionth part of a second and the sensation we have of the actuality of the division of time is known as the present comes from the blurring of that momentary glimpse or a succession of glimpses of things that our senses give us as those things pass from the region of ideals which we call the future to the region of memories that we name the past in the same way we experience sensations of durations in the cause of the instantaneous spark by reason of the blurred and continuing impressions on the retina, the real person or thing does not consist solely of what is seen at any particular moment, but is composed of the sum of all the ver of its various and changing conditions from its appearance in the material form to its disappearance from earth. Okay. So it is these sum totals that exist from eternity in the future and pass by degree through matter to exist for eternity in the past. Okay. So as an example, no one could say that a piece of metal dropped into the sea came into existence as it left the air and ceased to exist as it entered the water and that the bar itself consists only of that cross section thereof, which at any given moment coincided with the mathematical plane that separates and at the same time joins the atmosphere and the ocean. Even so of person and things which dropping out of the to be into the has been out of the future into the past present momentarily to our senses a cross section as it were of their total selves as they pass through time and space as matter on their way from one eternity to another and these two constitute that duration in which alone anything has true existence where our senses but able to cognize it there okay basically what this is saying is time is an illusion and since we're always in this state of becoming where we never live the same moment twice nothing has a real duration 
because everything is constantly changing. Think of the law of vibration, okay? So duration is infinite because everything is always moving. Everything is always changing. Just a quick overview. The first stanza is saying that basically in this first part, right? In this in this state of non-existence, there was no vibration. There was no thought being projected. It was just stillness. Whereas the second stanza is saying time was also not present. It was almost as if, you know, the universe or space was sleep. Okay. Time was not present because there was no one there to observe the time to observe past, present, and future. Okay. So stanza one part three says universal mind was not for there were no ahi, which are celestial beings to contain, which means to manifest. Okay. There was no one there to manifest anything. And in order for us to experience consciousness, living wakefulness, right? There needs to be a vehicle for that consciousness. Okay. That's what this is saying. But let me read you what Helena said. She said, mine is the name given to the sum of the states of consciousness grouped under thought, will, and feeling during deep sleep ideation cease on the physical plane and memory is abeyance. Thus for the time being mind is not because the organ through which the ego manifests ideation and memory on the material plane has temporarily ceased to function. A noumenon can become a phenomenon on any plane of existence only by manifesting on the plane through an appropriate basis or a vehicle. And during the long night of rest called Perleia, when all existence are dissolved, the universal mind remains as permanent possibility of mental action or as the abstract thought of which mind is the concrete relative manifestation. Now the Ahi are the collective host of spiritual beings. They're the angelic host of Christianity, the Elohim and messengers of the Jews who are the vehicle of manifestation of the divine or universal thought and will. Okay. They are the intelligent forces that give to and enact in nature, her laws while themselves acting according to the laws imposed upon them in a similar manner by still higher powers, but they are not the personifications of the powers of nature as erroneously thought this hierarchy of spiritual beings through which the universe universal mind comes into action is like an army. So it's like a host um, by means of which the fighting powers of a nation manifest itself in which is composed of army corps, divisions, brigades, uh, regiments, and so forth, each with its separate individuality or life and it limits freedom of action and limited responsibility. Each contains in a larger individuality to which its own interests are subservient and each contains lesser individuality in itself. So basically part three is telling us that the universal mind is just a collection of abstract thoughts or possibilities to be explored until a vehicle is present to manifest them and put them into action. So we are all mediums for this information and through our actions, we explore and manifest, but everything comes from the universal mind or powers higher than your current incarnation status. And there are laws meant to govern these explorations, which everyone has to follow. So this is saying there were no beings or vehicles to manifest and explore this energy. And during this state of deep sleep or ideation, which is thoughts, wills, and feelings, those things cease to exist on the physical plane because there was no one there to observe them. So you can use the law of correspondence again to understand this. When we go into the sleep state, right? In the physical world, our ability to act on our thoughts, our wills, and our feelings are temporarily suspended. 
So yes, we can think and we can feel in the dream state, but we are on the mental plane, not in the physical. So when we wake up, everything is going to be the same as it was when we went to sleep. Okay. So to me, this is saying that the universal mind was sleeping in this state of non-existence. I told y'all from the beginning, reading this book was a mind fuck. It was a clusterfuck. It took me so much time to actually go and look up some of these words and look up some of these concepts so that I can actually digest and understand this. So I'm still giving y'all what the book of Dizon says. I'm still giving y'all what the secret doctrine says, but my explanations come directly from looking this information up and digging deeper so that I can understand. Okay. So I'm glad that we're doing this together because y'all, I promise y'all, I was just like, what the heck am I reading? All right. <laughs> so uh, stanza one, part four says the seven ways to bliss which they called the moksha or nirvana were not the great causes of misery which they call nadana and maya were not for there was no one to produce and get ensnarled by them let's start with some definitions so we can break this down piece by piece okay now all of these uh, definitions actually come from theosophy wiki which is basically dedicated to helena's work um so let's start with the mashka and nirvana and then we'll go to the nadana in the maya okay now nirvana literally translates as outblow or blowing out now i know nirvana has been mistranslated in the past to mean extinction of all consciousness or not thinking at all but that's a mistranslation it's meant to represent the blowing out of the fire of greed hatred and delusion specifically or simply all consciousness okay the ex the esoteric explanation is that this state of absolute existence and absolute consciousness into which the ego of a man who has reached the highest degree of perfection and holiness during life goes after the body dies and occasionally as in the case of the Guatama Buddhas and others during life you can reach this stage so it's the releasing of the ego which causes separation competition judgment you know greed hatred and delusion and entering this place of tranquility and true peace of mind okay and then you have moksha which translate liberation and it's the state of absolute freedom bliss and peace where you are liberated from the pain and suffering that we experience specifically during this incarnation now Nadana means cause foundation structure origin and it basically means that there are 12 reasons or causes of being which are also the 12 causes of misery okay so one is from spiritual ignorance arises mental formation two is from mental formation arises consciousness three is from consciousness arises name and form four is from name and form arises the sense of organs and their objects Five is from sense organs and their objects arise contact from contact arises sensation from sensation arises cravings from cravings arises clinging from clinging arises becoming from becoming arises birth. Okay. And then the last one or last two is from birth arises aging and dying. Okay. And these are meant to be like the 12 reasons that we suffer in this existence, right? And in the, in this temporary incarnation. Okay. So these 12 nadanas cause the most extreme reactions under karmic law. And our existence on this plane is to experience pain, suffering, and misery. And not even death can release us from the karma that we accumulate during our lifetime because we have to reincarnate until we are able to free ourselves. Okay. Next is Maya, which just means illusion or ignorance. 
which awakens the nadanas. So basically the fact that we have to learn without any prior knowledge leads us to gaining karma because of our ignorance and can lead to misery since the universe is considered an illusion and nadanas are the causes and effects of being, they are closely related. And the greatest maya is the illusion of separation and us believing that because we are having an individual experience, we are separate and not working towards the same goal. Again, makes me think of Midnight Gospel episode five, y'all, Prison World episode. A lot of what we learn about this world can be found in that episode. Like it was literal gold. I wish I would have thought of that shit. So um, what is the secret doctrine saying about this though? Okay, let's jump into what it says. So part A says that there are seven paths or ways to bliss of non-existence, which is absolute being, existence, and consciousness. They were not though because the universe was so far empty and existed only in divine thought, for it is. Part B says the 12 nadanas or causes of being, each in the effect of its antecedent cause, and a cause in its turn to its successor. The sum total of the Nadanas being based on the four truths, which is a doctrine, a doctrine based on the characteristics of the Hanayana system, which is like a school. So they belong to the theory of the stream of catenated law, which produces merit and demerit, and finally brings karma into full sway. It is based upon the great truth that reincarnation is to be dreaded as existence in this world only entails upon man's suffering, misery, and pain. Death itself being unable to deliver man from it since death is merely the door through which he passes to another life on earth after a little rest on its threshold, which is the threshold they call the Davachan. Okay, we talked about that when we talked about the astral plane. That's what the Devachan is, okay? So the Hanayan system or school of the little vehicle is what it's called, is a very ancient growth, while the Mahayanas is of a later period, having originated after the birth of Buddha. Yet the tenets of the latter are as old as the hill that have contained such schools from time immemorial and the Hanayanas and the Mahayanas schools, the latter that the great vehicle both teach the same doctrine in reality. Yana or vehicle is a mystic expression, both vehicles in calculating that man may escape the suffering of rebirth and even the false bliss of David Kana by obtaining wisdom and knowledge, which alone can dispel the fruits of illusion and ignorance. So Maya or illusion is an element which enters into all finite things. So everything that is manifested is going to have illusions for everything that exists has only a relative, not an absolute reality. Since the appearance, which the hidden noumenon assumes for any observer depends upon the power of cognition. So this is basically saying that we don't know what the object of thought that is supposed to be being explored by us is. So we fall victim to the illusions that our senses cause. Okay. So to the untrained eye of the savage, a painting is at first glance an unmeaning confusion of streaks and dabs of color while an educated eye sees instantly a face or a landscape. Nothing is permanent except the one hidden absolute existence, which contains in itself the noumenon of all realities. The existences belonging to every plane of being upon the highest, the Dion Chohans, are in degree of the nature of shadows cast by magic lanterns on the colorless screen. But all things are relatively real for the cognizer, which is the person who is actually trying to critically think about something, their reality feels real to them. Okay. 
It is also a reflection, and the things cognized are therefore as real to him as himself. Whatever reality things possess must be looked for in them before and after they are passed, like the flash through the material world. But we cannot cognize any such existence directly, so long as we have sense instruments which bring only material existence into the field of consciousness. Meaning that if we only have access to our physical senses, then there's no way for us to ever understand this. So whatever plane our consciousness may be acting in, both we and the things belonging to that plane are, for the time being, our only real, real realities, okay? So as we rise in the scale of development, we perceive that during the stages through which we have passed, we mistook shadows for realities, and the upward progress of the ego is a series of progressive awakenings. So each advance bringing with it the idea that now at last we have reached reality, but only when we shall have reached the absolute consciousness and blended our minds with it shall we be free from the delusion produced by the Maya. Now, this part is just basically telling us that none of this exists in this state of non-existence or non-being, but in the state of being that we are experiencing, there are seven paths to bliss or enlightenment. We should dread reincarnating because that means that we have to live again through ignorance, pain, and suffering. And the more we reincarnate, the more lessons we have to clear because our karma uh, continues to collect over each reincarnation. Okay. So in addition to that, through knowledge and wisdom, which is the application of knowledge, once you have used your emotions to gain understanding about how you feel about the knowledge is the only way that you can be free from these illusions, this magic and these shadows that play on our senses to keep us trapped in this false reality. So the illusions are always going to be there guys. So you have to continue to grow and evolve using the laws of nature as your guide. Okay. Because they're going to, as, as you continue to grow and evolve, like the universe is like a fucking onion. You start to pull back the layers and every time you think you get closer there's another layer that needs to be pulled back okay so the only way for you to lift the veil is for you to continue to learn for you to continue to grow and apply the knowledge that you've learned okay now we mentioned the Hanaya system and then Hanaya just means the smaller vehicle this is a system that follows a path of enlightenment and when you pass the fourth initiation you're considered as worthy okay so I don't I've mentioned this a million times before but there's something called the ascension manual and it goes into great depth in this book about this and it takes you through the six initiations that you need to go through which which is basically releasing your ego so that you can you know walk through life in this balanced nature okay which i think i'm gonna next season go over that ascension manual and teach us how to do that um but this is just saying that the hanaya system is basically this path to enlightenment okay so it should really make sense now why people are always saying we will perish for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is useless without the application or the action to follow it because knowledge and truth are tools used on this path to enlightenment. Okay. So it, is, it should also be very clear why knowledge is always being hidden from us. While we're always given these half truths that they state as all inclusive facts and illusions are always being presented to shape his story, not history, his story. Okay. And then when they talk about my story, right. Or mystery, it's presented to us as fiction and something that we cannot understand. Okay. So it's not enough for us to just study these ancient teachings, but we also have to study the entomology of these words too, because they put it in our face. They are very, very crafty. Okay, and nothing is really hidden, but it's taught in a way that benefits a certain group of people instead of the good of all people. 
Okay, but I digress. I know I turn into a preacher. So part five says that darkness alone filled the boundless all for father, mother, and son were once more one. And the son has not awakened yet for the new will in his pilgrimage thereon. Okay. So part A says darkness is the father, mother light is their son. Okay. And this comes from the Eastern proverb light is inconceivable, except as coming from some source, which is the cause of it. And as in the instance of primordial light, that source is unknown. Though as strongly demanded by reason and logic, therefore it is called darkness by us from an intellectual point of view. As to borrowed or secondary light, whatever its source, it can be but of a temporary Mayavik character. Darkness then is the eternal matrix in which the source of light appears and disappears. Nothing is added to darkness to make it of light or to light to make it darkness on this plane that is that we're living on okay so they are interchangeable and scientifically light is but a mode of darkness and vice versa yet both are phenomenon on the same noumenon which is the absolute darkness to the scientific mind and but a gray twilight to the perception of the average mystic though to that of the spiritual eye of the initiate in its absolute light how far we discern the light that shines in darkness depends upon our powers of vision what is light to us is darkness to certain insects and the eye of the clairvoyant sees illuminations where the normal eye perceives only blackness. When the whole universe was plunged in sleep had returned to its one primordial element, there was neither center of luminosity nor eye to perceive light and darkness necessarily filled the boundless all. Okay. So basically what this is saying is that there was no one to perceive light or darkness in this state of non-existence or non-being. There is also not a center of light. So in this state of non-existence, darkness filled the infinite all. There is no way for us to tell where light or darkness comes from, but we are to understand that they are two of the same thing, two extremes or poles of the same thing. Darkness is present where light disappears. Okay. So your vision depends on how developed your senses or of, of sight are. Okay. And what you see can be perceived by another completely different, depending on perspectives. People who learn to develop their clear senses are able to see through the illusions at the highest level. Now B says the father mother are the male and female principles in root nature. Okay. So the opposite poles that manifest in all things on every plane of cosmos or spirit and substance in a less allegorical aspect. So the resultant of which is the universe or the sun, what they consider to be the sun. They are once more one when in the night of Brahma during Pralaya, all in the objective universe has returned to its one primal and eternal cause to reappear at the following dawn as it does periodically. So this is me. This is just telling you that there was no separation between the female male principle and the light. They were all one. Okay. So there's something called Karana, which is called the eternal cause. And Karana was alone in this state. So to put it plainly, Karana was alone during the night of Brahma. So the previous objective universe had dissolved into itself um, into its one primal and eternal cause and is, so to say, held in solution in space to differentiate again and crystallize anew um, at the following man of enteric dawn, which is the commencement of a new day or new activity of Brahma, the symbol of the universe. In esoteric parlance, Brahma is father, mother, son, or spirit, soul, and body at once. Each percentage being symbolic of an attitude or quality being a graduated 
efflux of divine breath in this cyclic differentiation involuntary and evolutionary in the cosmico physical sense it is the universe the planetary chain and the earth all being one in the purely spiritual it is the unknown deity the planetary spirit and the man being one okay so the son of the two the creature of the spirit and matter and a manifestation of them in this periodical appearance on earth during the wheels of men of Antaro. okay so basically what this is saying is the father mother they are referring to was never supposed to be literal, but instead representative of the principle of gender that exists in everything. The female and male principle. Remember that the male principle directs its will towards the female principle, which starts the female principle in this process of creation. Okay. That happens in everything that is manifested. Okay. But in this case, it represents the relationship between the cosmic ideation and the cops, the cosmic substance or spirit and matter coming together and creating the universe, which is the sun. It is pointing out that the eternal cause of the formation of the universe doesn't have an effect in the state of non-existence because everything was all one. Now, part six says that seven sublime lords and seven truths has ceased to be in the universe. The son of necessity was immersed in Paranishpana, which is absolute perfection or Paranirvana, which is young grub to be outbreathed by that which is and yet not not was okay so part a says the seven sublime lords are the seven creative spirits the dion chahans who represent the hebrew elohim it is the same hierarchy of archangels to which saint michael saint gabriel and others belong in the christian thigani only while saint michael for instance is allowed in dogmatic latin theology to watch over the uh promontories and gulfs in the esoteric system the Dianis watch successfully over one of the rounds in the great root races of our planetary chain. So they moreover said to send their bodhisattvas, the human correspondence of the Dayani Buddhas of whom vied infra during every round in race out of the seven truths and revelations or rather revealed secrets four only have been handed to us as we are still in the fourth round and the world also has only four buddhas so far this is a very complicated question and will receive more ample treatment later on so far there are only four truths and four vedas says the hindus and the buddhist for a similar reason Aranos insisted on the necessity of four gospels but as every new root race at the head of the round must have its revelation or revealers the next round will bring fifth and following six and so on so explain this just means that the seven root races refer to the seven levels of consciousness that our planet goes through in its evolutionary cycle and each has seven subsections like the seven levels of consciousness or levels of density that we talked about now we are now in this fourth root race or entering into this fourth density of consciousness which is about love compassion and forgiveness because again it's associated with the heart chakra for every root race there are revelations or truths exposed and revealers which are souls meant to wake up the people to the truth so part B says that Paranishpana is the absolute perfection to which all existence attains at the close of a period of great activity or what they call Mahamana Ventara in which they rest during the succeeding 
period of repose. In Tibetan, this process is called Yang Grub. And up until the day of the Yoga Sharya school, the true nature of Pure Nirvana was taught publicly. But since then, it has been entirely esoteric or hidden. Hence, that's why there's so many contradictory interpretations of it, all right? Because it takes somebody who's a true idealistic to fully understand it because it requires you to view things as an ideal with the exception of Pure Nirvana by him who would comprehend that state and acquire a knowledge of how non-ego voidness and darkness are all the same thing. They're all three in one and alone self-existent and perfect. It is absolute, however, only in a relative sense for it must give room to still further absolute perfection according to a higher standard of excellence in the following period of activity, just as a perfect flower must cease to be perfect and die in order to grow into a perfect fruit. If so the secret doctrine teaches the progressive development of everything, worlds, as well as atoms, okay? And this stupendous development has neither conceivable beginnings nor imaginable ends. Our universe is only one of an infinite number of universes, all of them sons of necessity, because they are linked in this great cosmic chain of universes, and each one standing in relation of an effect as regard its predecessors, and being a cause as regard its successor. So the appearance and disappearance of the universe are pictured as an outbreathing and inbreathing of the great breath, which is eternal and which being motion is one of the three aspects of the absolute. Okay. Abstract space and duration being the other two. So when the great breath is projected, it is called the divine breath and is regarded as the breathing of the unknowable deity, the one existence, which breathes out a thought as it were, which becomes the cosmos. So also, it is when the divine breath is inspired again, the universe disappears into the bosom of the great mother, who then sleeps wrapped in her invisible robe. So what this is telling us is that everything is in a state of perfection when the cycle ends or a universe collapses within itself. Everything that happened during the evolution or processing of that divine thought that created that particular universe was necessary for it to reach the state of perfection it attained before the dissolution of that universe. Okay, so the mother father represents the male and female principles that are present in every manifestation which creates the universe or the sun who has to learn to run, walk, sing, just like us. We're made in the universe's likeness, right? So grow and evolve. So it's a metaphor that someone interpreted literally, okay? And we are one of many universes being explored all at different states in their evolutionary process. So we are currently in the four out of seven great rounds of or densities of consciousness, okay, which have subsections in between them. So the secret doctrine is meant to help us understand this evolutionary process so that we can realize that there is no separation and we are meant to collectively decide what we like and what we don't like while we are exploring this thought process that we're not aware of what the fucking thought is. The only way for us to be aware of it is to continue continue to evolve and grow ourselves, which evolves and grows the collective consciousness. Okay. So there are no coincidences and everything literally happens for a reason, which is meant to provide us perspective. We all have the same goal or to transcend our pain so that we can make better decisions so that we can grow and evolve together because we are infinite. And this is our soul's mission, no matter what vehicle we're in and no matter where we're at in the multiverse. Now, part C says, by that which is and yet is not, is meant the great breath itself, 
which we can only speak of as absolute existence, but cannot picture to our imagination as any form of existence that we can distinguish from non-existence. So the three periods, the present, the past, the future, are in the esoteric philosophy a compound time. For the three are a composite number only in relation to the phenomenal plane, but in the realm of noumenon have no abstract validity, okay? So it doesn't exist. As said in the scriptures, the past time is the present time, as also the future, which though it has not come into existence, still is. So according to the prosanga Matimika teachings, whose dogma have been known ever since it broke away from the purely esoteric schools, our ideas in short on duration and time are all derived from our sensations according to the laws of association. Intrinsically bound up with the relativity of human knowledge, they nevertheless can have no existence except in the experience of the individual ego and perish when its evolutionary march dispels the Maya or illusion of the phenomenal existence. What is time, for instance, but the uh, panoramic succession of our states of consciousness? In the word of a master, I feel irritated at having to use these three clumsy words, past, present, and future, miserable concepts of the objective phase of the subjective whole. They are about as ill-adapted for the purpose as an axe for fine carving. One has to acquire Paramartha lest one should become too easy a prey to Semvrita, it's, which is a basically a philosophical axiom. Now, this mentioned the law of association. If you don't know what that is, it basically lets us know that we loosely associate things that are similar to each other. Okay. So this part is basically saying that the past, present, and future are all happening in the present moment. It is another illusion of separation. When we're thinking about the past, it has already happened and you are using the present moment to relive it. When you are thinking about the future, no, it has not come into existence yet, but it is a possibility that can be manifested in this present moment, depending on how much time you spend focusing on it. Okay. So time is divided into past, present, and future. But since everything happens in this present moment, and a lot of us don't understand that we are manifesting what we are focusing on. If you are focusing on the past, your body will move into the state of being that you were in, in the past. If you're focusing on the future, that will come into your reality. So we we have to be very careful. Okay. So what happened happened and we cannot change that. But instead we need to understand that it happened because we needed to learn the lesson that only that experience could have taught us. Okay. So find the lesson so that you can navigate better in this present moment, which is constantly changing. Even what I'm saying is in the past by the time it leaves my lips and you hear it. So if you're focusing on the future, don't focus on what you don't have because you begin to manifest what you don't have in abundance. Instead, focus on what you want because you are creating your universe by what you choose to focus on. And the universe doesn't understand don'ts. It only understands abundance and that abundance is granted and directed by your focus. The future is just endless possibilities, things that could happen. Why not take control and decide what you want to happen? Hold that thought without worry of the other possibilities and be grateful for experiences that affirm what you want and watch magic happen, okay? Time is an illusion that we have to break out of because it does not exist. Only the now exists. Use it wisely because you are the manager of your life and you can take control at any time. But during this state of non-existence, time was not present because it's understood that everything is happening now. Time is a circumstance of a low plane or the plane subjected to illusion that needs to be dispelled to evolve 
back into the all, into this perfection, okay? So we need to not only become, we need to stop being so reliant on our physical sensations because they are creating this illusion and we need to develop ourselves, grow and evolve so that we can get into these higher states of consciousness, gain access to our astral senses, which will allow us to see through the illusions. Okay. That's what psychics are doing. They're able to see through the veil. They're able to see through the illusions. Okay. So it's your job to get to a higher state of conscious. So you can do that as well and be able to reach this state of balance in your life, shedding that lower ego. Now, part seven says the causes of existence has been done away with the visible that was in the invisible that is rested in the eternal non-being, the one being. A says the causes of existence mean not only the physical causes known to science, but the metaphysical causes, the chief of which is desire to exist an outcome of Nadana and Maya. This desire for a sentient life shows itself in everything from atoms to the sun and is a reflection of the divine thought propelled into objective existence into a law that the universe should exist. According to esoteric teachings, the real cause of that supposed desire and of all existence remains forever hidden and its first emanations are the most complete abstractions that man can conceive. So these abstractions must of necessity be postulated as the cause of the material universe, which presents itself to the senses and intellect. And they underlie the secondary and subordinate powers of nature, which anthropomorphize have been worshipped as God and gods by the common herd of every age. It is impossible to conceive anything without cause. The attempt to do so makes the mind blank. This is virtually the condition to which the mind must come at last when we try to trace back the chains of causes and effects. But most science and religion jumps to the condition of blankness much more quickly than is necessary for they ignore this fed, uh, metaphysical abstractions, which are the only conceivable cause of physical creation. OK, so these abstractions become more and more concrete as they approach the plane of existence until finally the phenomenalist on the form of the material universe by process of conversion of metaphysics into physics this process can actually be compared to steam that has been condensed into water and then water is frozen into ice okay they're all the same thing but just in different conditions okay so let me explain it further this is saying that it is hard for us to understand anything when we don't know its cause and by the time knowledge reaches the masses it is half truth because it has been distorted and excludes the spiritual or metaphysical component science only acknowledges the physical component and chucks the spiritual components or cause up to a coincidence or call it a phenomenon but literally everything that happens in this universe is a phenomenon which has a cause in the metaphysical world so steam water and ice are all the same thing just in different conditions same with what we have been taught Everything or everyone is saying the same thing, but from different perspectives and applying different conditions or states of consciousness. So part B says the idea of eternal non-being, which is the one being will appear as a paradox to anyone who does not remember that we limit our ideas of being to our present consciousness of existence. Okay. So making it a specific instead of a generic term, an unborn infant could think in our exception of that term would necessarily limit its conception of being in a similar manner to the life that it knows. Okay. So the life that is taught and were it to endeavor to express it to its consciousness, the idea of life after birth or to it birth 
right? Birth would be death to a baby that is coming into this plane, right? It would, in absence of data to go upon and of faculties to comprehend such data, probably express to that life as non-being, which is real being. In our cases, the one being is the noumenon of all noumenons, which we know must underlie the phenomenon. And whatever shadow of the reality they possess, but which we have not the senses or intellect to cognize at present. The impalpable atoms of gold scattered through the substance of a ton of quartz may be imperceptible to the naked eye of the miner, yet he knows that they are not only present there, but that they alone give his quartz any appreciable value and this relation of gold to quartz may faintly shadow forth that the noumenon to the phenomenon but miner knows what to look for right because they've extracted gold before and they know that they have to extract the quartz first so where a common mortal would not know that right because they would be veiled by this illusion that this is all quartz but they don't know that they would have to go further because that is what is hidden from them. So alone, the initiate rich with the lore acquired by numberless generations of its predecessor directs the eye of Dangma towards the essence of things in which no Maya can have any influence. It is here that the teachings of esoteric philosophy in relation to the Nidanas and the four truths become the greatest importance, but they are secret. Okay. Meaning that these things are unhidden to us. And because we're not skilled and because we haven't learned the lessons, because we haven't been taught this information, we don't know what it looks like. So we don't know where to look. Now, I know that was a lot to digest, but I'm just going to explain it to you in plain. This is explaining the concept of us not being able to see past what we have experienced and what we are aware of or what we know exists. So in turn, we are limited by what we can conceive. Okay. And since the truth is hidden, we must strive to expand our consciousness so that what is hidden can be illuminated in turn, lifting the veil of illusion. Possibilities are just possibilities until we focus our intention there. Okay. The only way to lift the veil and see through the illusions is to educate yourself is knowledge but not only knowledge is also becoming in tune with your emotions which are signals meant to help you to interpret the knowledge okay and once you decide how you feel about the knowledge you have to apply it which is true wisdom Okay, the application of what you learned and what you understand to be true. Expanding your consciousness is the way through. Okay, you have to understand that, yes, there is being right. But there is also non-being, which is the only state of being, which is being a part of the whole, because it means your consciousness has moved through the state of being to return to the all return to rest. That is our real reality. Everything else is temporary, like our incarnation into this material plane. Okay. It doesn't, it does not matter what type of incarnation you have. You will always go back to this all where it, you exist in wholeness with everything that is okay. You'll be in this state of absolute perfection. All right. Now eight says alone, the one form of existence stretched, boundless, infinite, causeless, and dreamless sleep and life pulsated unconscious in the universal space throughout that all present, which is sensed by open eyes of dangma. Okay. So the tendency of modern thought is to recur to the archaic idea of homogeneous basis for apparently widely different things. Heterogeneity developed from homogeneity. Biologists are now searching for the hom homogeneous 
protoplasm and chemists for their proto style. While science is looking for the force of which electricity, magnetism, heat, and so forth are the differentiations. The secret doctrine carries this idea into the region of metaphysics and postulates a one form of existence as the basis and source of all things. But perhaps the phrase, the one form of existence is not altogether um, correct. Okay. It is not the mother of world as translated by Wilson for Jagad Yoni as shown by Fitz Edward Hall is scarcely so much the mother of the world or the womb of the world as the material cause of the universe. The perinanic commentators explain it by Karana, which is the cause, the eternal cause, remember, but the esoteric philosophy by the ideal spirit of that cause. It is in its secondary stage, the Svet Havet of the Buddhist philosopher, the eternal cause and effect omnipresent yet abstract and self-existent plastic essence and the root of all things viewed in the same dual light as the Vedantin views his Parabrahm and Mola Prakriti, the one under two aspects. So basically this part is pointing out that every science is looking for the one origin of the universe, but doing so with half truths. There is no real way for us to know especially while denying the metaphysical portion of it. But we do know that heterogeneity develops from homogeneity, meaning that if there's a bunch of things that are individuals, it came from one source. And science is attempting to uncover the one true origin through various lenses, okay? Part B says dreamless sleep is one of the seven states of consciousness known in Oriental esotericism. In each of these states, a different portion of the mind comes into action, or as a Vedantin would express it, the individual is conscious in a different plane of being. The term dreamless sleep in this case is applied to the state of consciousness in man, which not being remembered in a waking state seems a blank, just as the sleep of the uh, mesmerized subject seems to him as unconscious blank when he returns to his normal condition, although he has been talking and acting as a conscious individual world. Okay. So basically just to explain this in short, that means that this dreamless state is the state of consciousness that we can't remember upon returning to our wakefulness. So it can be reached through hypnosis as well. So we can be conscious and acting without actually being aware, meaning we are acting on a separate plane of existence while still inhabiting this one. Okay. So eight tells us that this state of non-existence is like being in a dreamless sleep in a world where only you exist or the all exist okay so taking up all the space with no restrictions everywhere all at once in an unconscious state and then when it does wake up that's when universes are created okay but it starts out in this stage of non-existence now the last part is nine and it says but where was the dangma when the alaya of the universe soul as the basis of all Amina Mundi was in the Paramartha, which is absolute being or consciousness, which are absolute non-being and unconsciousness. And the great will was Anupadaka. Okay. So part A says, here we have before us the subject of centuries of uh, scholastic di disputation. The two terms, Alaya and Paramartha, have been the cause of dividing schools and splitting the truth into more different aspects than any other mystic terms. Alaya is literally the soul of the world or Amina Mundi, the oversoul of Emerson. And according to esoteric teachings, it changes periodically in its nature. Alaya, though eternal and changeless in its inner essence on the plane, which are unreachable by men or cosmic gods, which are the, the Diana Buddhas, 
alter during the active life period with respect to the lower planes, ours included. During that time, not only the Dhyani Buddhas are one with Alaya in soul and essence, but even the man strong in the yoga, which is a, a mystic meditation, is able to merge his soul with it. Um, Sangha, the Bamapa school, this is not Nirvana, but a condition next to it. Hence the disagreement Thus, while the yoga sharas, which is which are the people who come from the Mayana school, say that Alaya is the personification of the voidness, and yet Alaya is the basis of every visible and invisible thing, that though it is internal and immutable in its essence, it reflects itself in every object of the universe, like the moon on a clear, tranquil water. Other schools schools dispute that statement. The same for Paramartha. So in this section, it's a lot of words that just blow me. So y'all just gonna have to bear with me, okay? The Yogasharas interpret the term as that which is also dependent upon other things, Paratantra. And the Madamakas say that Paramartha is limited to Paranishpana, which is absolute perfection. So an example is the exposition of the two truths out of four. The former believe and maintain that on this plane, at any rate, there exists, um, there exists only the relative truth and their latter teaches the existence of the absolute truth. So there's no fourth uh, initiate student who can reach absolute knowledge before they become one with pure Nirvana. Now the issues that they run into is what they call Paracalpita and Paratantra. And these are called the two enemies of, you know, reaching this pure Nirvana. Okay. So Paracalpita is error made by those who, are unable to realize the emptiness and illusionary nature of it all, who believe something exists which does not the non-ego. And Paratantra is that, whatever it is, which exists only through a dependent or causal connection in which has to disappear as soon as the cause from which it proceeds is removed. Okay, so like a light of a wick, destroyed or extinguished it and the light disappears. So just to explain this further, Mystics argue about the same thing because of this illusion of duality and separation, all with different perspectives and understanding, but there is no way for even the best of these initiates to be all knowing, especially without becoming one with what exists beyond what they can visibly see. So your enemies are the errors or mistakes that you make when your reality is still distorted by illusion and the belief systems we have that can only be broken through us realizing the lie and deconstructing the habits and beliefs that we developed when we didn't know any better okay so you literally have to go through this process of of relearning things of breaking down those bad habits that come that came from your ignorance okay and that's how you get through to this shedding of this lower ego now esoteric philosophy teaches that everything lives and is conscious but not that all life and consciousness are similar to those of humans or even animal beings so life we look upon as the one form of existence manifesting in what is called matter or as man what incorrectly separates them we name spirit soul and matter matter is the vehicle for manifestations of the soul on this plane of existence and soul is the vehicle on the higher plane for the manifestation of spirit and these three are the trinity trinity synthesized by life which pervades them all the idea of universal life is one of those ancient conceptions which are returning to the human mind in this century as a consequence of its liberation from anthropomorphic theology science it is true contends itself with tracing or postulating the signs of the universal life and has not yet been old enough even to whisper Amina Mundi. 
the idea of crystalline life now familiar to science would have been scouted half a century ago botanists are now searching for the nerves of plants not that they suppose that plants can feel or think as animals do but because they believe that some structure bearing the same relation functionality to plant life that nerves bear to animal life is necessary to explain vegetables growth and nutrition it hardly seems possible that science can disguise from itself much longer by the mere use of terms such as force and energy that fact that things that have life are living things, whether they have atoms or plants or planets, right? Whether they're atoms or planets, okay? So to explain this further, matter is the vehicle for physical manifestation. Soul is the vehicle for spiritual manifestation. This is why you have to be more electric because it strengthens your connection with your higher self operating in the higher planes of existence. We are scientifically just starting to scratch the surface of understanding the living and consciousness, right? And we are expanding using the principle of correspondence. So examining ourselves in comparison to other states of matter, because we now know that all are connected, right? And we now understand that everything is living or in motion and has consciousness spirit. Everything is spiritual and in motion. Now, the next part of her paragraph, I'm not going to read. I'm just going to summarize for you. This is saying that none of this is new knowledge or was discovered by historic philosophers. They just brought it back to our attention. Most of the inner esoteric schools believe that multiple things can exist at once and the soul of the universe has many facets. However, different groups are teaching one facet as the only facet. So it goes on to say that absolute consciousness they tell us behind phenomenon, which is only termed unconscious in the absence of any element of personality, transcends human conception. Man, unable to form one con concept except in terms of empirical phenomenon, is powerless from the very constitute of his being to raise the veil that shrouds the ma majesty of the absolute. Only the liberated spirit is able to faintly realize the nature, nature of the source whence it sprung and whether it must eventually return as the highest Dion Kohan. However, can but bow in ignorance before the awful mystery of absolute being. And since even in the culmination of conscious existence, the merging of the individual in the universal consciousness, to use a phrase of Fitch, who is basically a cultist, the finite cannot conceive the infinite, nor can it apply to it its own standard of mental expressions. How can it be said that the unconscious and the absolute can have even an instinctive impulse or hope of attaining clear self-consciousness? A Vedantin would never admit this Hegelian idea and the occultists would say that it applies perfectly to the awakened Mahada. The universal mind already projected into the phenomenal world as the first aspect of the changeless absolute but never to the latter. Spirit matter or Purusha and Perkriti are but two primeval aspects of the one and secondless we are taught. The matter moving noose, the animated soul Eminent in every atom manifested in man, latent in the stone, has different degrees of power. And this pantheistic idea of general spirit soul pervading all nature is the oldest of the philosophical, uh, philosophical notions. Nor was the Archaeus a discovery of Perselius nor his pupil Van Helmont, for it is again the same Archaeus or Father Aether. The manifested basis and source of the innumerable phenomenon of life localized. The whole series of numberless speculations of the kind are but various on this theme, the keynote of which was struck in the primeval revelation. 
Basically, what this is saying is spirit matter are two aspects of the oneness. Only soul that can pass their own levels of consciousness will be able to lift the veil. Okay, meaning that you have to be able to learn and grow. You have to be able to get access to your higher senses so that you can see through the veil. And you have to shed your karma that you gained while you did not know what you are what you know now and then you need to debunk the belief systems and habits that you put in place because of those mistakes or what you did not know now part b of this part nine is just explaining the term anupadaka which just means parentless or without progenerators okay they're talking about the dia kohans that we talked about the people who have shed their lower ego and they're also talking about what they call the human buddhas um and i'm just going to give you my explanation just because um it's just hard to understand what they were trying to say in the context that she said it but basically when the universe is in this state of non-existence it is parentless or the female and male principle do not exist the all is the only thing that exists outside of the laws of nature or principle such as the principles of gender so this is telling us that the all is the state of non-existence and when we merge our consciousness back with the all that will be our state absolute perfection no movement no thoughts like nothingness but infinite and boundless meaning we literally are everywhere all at once whenever we are in this state of being it is temporary and we are meant to learn and grow making sure that our mind body and souls are aligned in all three planes of existence so that we can become perfection again and return to the all or this state of non-existence. We are all non-existent in this observable state, okay? Now, baby, that was a lesson. And I'll tell you what, this was one of the most frustrating lessons I had to put together because it, it did not make a lot of sense to me and it caused me to do a lot of research. So just know that I love y'all. So today we explored the first stanza, which explains the first day of creation or the first state of consciousness in this evolutionary process, which is just non-existence. Nothing was there. No time, no space, no beings to perceive anything, no motion. Nothing was in existence at this time. That is the overall point of today's lesson. Again, this in information is from the secret book of Dizon, the secret doctrine and Theosophy Wiki. Next week, we'll explore and start stanza three and two. I'm sorry, stanza two, then three. Um, which is three is going to be a longer one. So we'll be talking about three for the next two episodes. So I just want to say, I love y'all deep and I'll talk to y'all next week.